Welcome to The Human Advantage, a podcast from the Centre for Army Leadership, which explores the more personal and tactical applications of leadership. In each episode, we meet someone who has experienced the highs and lows of leading, in situations ranging from major combat operations to challenges in barracks. We explore what they've learned about leadership to help our junior leaders prepare for success on operations today and in the future. I'm your host, Ash Bardwaj, a journalist and broadcaster and a British Army Reserve Captain with the Rifles. In this episode, we meet someone who knows the value of owning his mistakes. I took that to the CO. I took it as my failing, because not only does that explain really quickly up the chain of command what's gone wrong and possibly what you can do about it, but it also gives them the trust in you that you're being honest with them. You know, that's, that's really important. Whilst at the same time, buying the trust of your subordinates who know that you're willing to take responsibility for, you know, what goes on in that company. And who sees the application of policy and doctrine as vital to consistency. In doing so, you sort of got the nickname of Captain Rigid, which the soldiers liked to call me because they thought they were taking the mick out of me. But actually it was a compliment to me because it was reassuring that I was getting that approach right and giving them that handrail to operate on, you know, and that was really rewarding. Major Charlie Lee commissioned into 1st Battalion the Princess of Wales's Royal Regiment, the PWRR, in 2006. After Rifle Platoon Command, he deployed on Herrick 15 in Afghanistan in 2011 as part of the Police Advisory Team and returned to Battalion to become the Officer Commanding, the OC, of the Mortar Platoon, then Battalion Operations Officer. After Staff College and Staff Roles, he took on Subunit Command at 2 PWRR in the Specialised Infantry role, with operational tours in East Africa. He is currently the Chief Instructor for Seniors Term at the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst. In this conversation, Charlie reveals how his early mistakes helped him develop as a leader. We explore the balance between being liked and respected, as well as the application of loyalty and integrity to others and the chain of command. When I came to Sandhurst, I'd had a little bit of experience at the officer training corps at university prior. And I think I saw Sandhurst as a, a stepping stone to starting my career. So I probably didn't apply myself as much as I should have when I was here. And then took an active choice to when we went to Brecon for the platoon commander's battle course there to really start to apply myself there as opposed to here. And so I did quite well at Brecon because, I, you know, it was just hard work. You know, it's, it's not easy, but you just need to apply yourself, do the hard work and you, you get something out of it. And so I really took that forward with the aspiration of just being a quite a competent, effective platoon commander. But then I think, you know, sort of my approach as a, as a junior officer in battalion was almost because I'd done quite well at Brecon. I kind of felt like I was, I'd made it a little bit and I was probably a bit too lenient with my platoon, perhaps. You know, I wanted to... I wanted them to accept me as a good leader without actually sort of doing the hard yards of leadership early. I've changed, I've evolved as a leader over the years. So I guess I needed that part of my journey to to learn because it's not all about the good stuff, right? And what did that look like? So you said that you may, may have been a bit too lenient. Was it familiarity and did that then make it hard to discipline people? Yeah, a bit of over familiarity, I guess. I wanted to, I had the approach of being competent, but the nice guy so that, you know, the, the platoon would like me, I guess. Whereas actually what you need to do is, you know, be respected rather than liked. Liking will come hopefully in time, but you don't need to be liked to be well respected. And so, yeah, there was probably some unconscious favoritism going on where the, you know, more competent NCOs in the platoon, you know, I'd lean on them more often and applying reward and discipline, you've got to be really fair with, no matter whether 
that's with the, the person who's always late or whether it's with the person who's never late, but you still need to take the same action when they are late so that you're being fair to, to all of your people. What was the outcome of not applying that reward and discipline fairly? What did it make difficult in that environment? I think probably I just didn't command the respect of the, the platoon the way I wanted to. And so the, the symptom of that was then, you know, on exercise, it was a bit more of a discussion when we wanted to do stuff rather than, you know, me giving orders and direction. And so and I couldn't really at the time work out why that was because, I, you know, I knew that I could lead. I knew that I could lead in an infantry role. You know, and I knew I had the skills somewhere to do it. It's just that I wasn't gelling as well with my platoon as, as I wanted to. And it's only later down the line I sort of came to came to know and learn that actually, you know, your approach, your outset from the start really sets the tone and you don't need to be liked to be competent. That, that'll come through your professionalism once you display it. And you did go on operations in Afghanistan leading a platoon, but it was a composite platoon that was had a slightly different role. Yeah, on, on Operation Herrick 15, we were part of the police mentoring and advisory group. And so I had a, a police assistance team, which is essentially a multiple. But because the role I was doing was one of the last to be developed, and I was the first person to do it as the OC of the ANCOP mentoring group, Afghan National Civil Order Police, we basically cobbled together a load of people from a variety of different units across 20 Brigade and Task Force Helmand which meant I had about five different cap badges in my, in my small team and quite top heavy on rank. So there's five, five sergeants at one point, which means, you know, it meant I had quite a diverse group. But it was really interesting, you know, that brings a, a good richness of different backgrounds, different trades, but it was quite a steep learning curve for me to optimise that and get the best out of that team, which I had to sort of build as we were doing the job as well. So, you know, we, if we go back to, you know, Adair's individual team and, and the task you know I was young in my career so still relatively inexperienced trying to build a team at the same time as I was understanding and doing the task so it was fairly overwhelming at stages but uh, all doable and you know that's where I think consultation really helps you know speaking to those around you with with more experience but of course that's got the flip side of when you've got five sergeants in your team being uh, you know you've got five five differing views there you know where do you where do you look to so you know a lot of experience to draw from, but also more information to try and make decisions on. So that made the decision making a little bit more difficult because you had people with experience offering you advice. Sometimes it would have been conflicting, but ultimately the decision comes down to you as the commander. Yeah, it does. And you know, from that, I actually had to sort of formalise, you know, who was the team sergeant at that point. And I, I did that by choosing the person who was from my battalion and they weren't necessarily the most senior sergeant or the most experienced there but they were the person i trusted the most because we'd actually trained together and we came from the same capability so both infantry and that obviously can put other people out as well because there's people with five more years experience there who felt like they should be the second in command but sometimes you've got to make a difficult decision like that and, and go with it and explain to people why why you've done it and then still brought the others back in as sme inputters to keep them bought into the to the team's output without completely alienating them by, you know, saying right this is this is my team sergeant, this is my two IC in terms of administrating the team and and getting stuff done, um, and you guys are my my subject matter experts to to advise on the rest of everything else we do. So you you improve the function of the team by building trust, by explaining the why, but also by sourcing out the orbit. Were there any particular moments where that mix of cat badges experience 
meant that things were a bit more difficult when you were giving orders? Did it understanding the strengths and weaknesses of your team in getting to do things become complex? Yeah, I mean, there's there's lots of moments in six months of of operational talk and go by really quickly, but then you look back and you, you squeeze quite a lot in. But one that probably jumps out at me was you know using one of the, the sergeants I had um, to cover an R and R gap, and I I was asking him to go up as top cover on one of the one of the vehicles for a specific operation, which we were doing with the uh, Afghans, and you know he he quite openly didn't really want to do it which I just found quite confusing because, you know, it's the job that everyone in the team does at some point. And, you know, he he hadn't before uh, and he probably hadn't been brought onto that team to do that role. So I probably underestimated the amount of influence required in that decision, which again, when we look back at, you know, the, the doctrine now, leadership is, you know, influencing people to do something they don't necessarily want to do. And whilst you could do that through a lawful order and be, um, you know, quite quite direct with them actually you're probably gonna get a better outcome if you can convince them um, so that they want to do it rather than just being simply told to do it and so explaining the why you know and engaging with people if i'd done more appreciation of what i was asking that individual to do then i probably would have had a, a better outcome earlier and were there any times where you just simply had to demonstrate what needed to be done in order to lift the team up and pull them forward yeah certainly look you know i think we all subscribe to the principle that you wouldn't ask somebody to do what you're not prepared to do yourself. And so, you know, in Afghanistan at that time, there was clearly a threat of improvised explosive devices. So, um, you know, on a couple of occasions, I would be the one to go forward and confirm an ID because, you know, I want the team to see that I'm prepared to do it myself, but also just take the burden off that point person at that time. And, you know, there's other times as well where sometimes you just need to show people what, what you want. And, you know, I think of a, a one time in particular, we were coming back from a very long day, again, had done a deliberate operation through through the day. Night had fallen. We were trying to get back to uh, one of the police stations where we used to squat quite regularly on our on our tour of Helmand. And I could see that, the you know, the team was tired and we were doing some bot bomber trying to clear the way uh, in front of us. And some of the drills were just looking a bit tired, a little bit lazy. And so at that point, just jumped out, jumped down and out of the commodity seat of the vehicle and, and just took took point for a bit to get people back on track as to this is this is how we do it. We know we know what, how we do it. Let's not let the tiredness affect the thoroughness of what we're doing here. So leading um, by example is a way to show everyone else this is what needs to be done. And that then just lifted the performance of the rest of the team. Yeah, I think so. I mean we you know we all got in that day and you know it was a successful day. So that might might have been a part of it. But I think it just, you know, it, it contributes to the the earning of trust as well when the team can see that you as the leader are prepared to do those things. But then you've got to balance that with not putting yourself at unnecessary risk because you're being paid as the commander of any team at that point to be the, you know, to be the commander and be the leader. So you wouldn't want to overexpose yourself to unnecessary danger and risk because that would then be irresponsible if you then left your team without a commander or leader for however long. But, you know, demonstrating you're prepared to to do the nitty gritty, I think, is is important. And I think that expands through army leadership, but also in sports, you know, for example, when you're playing rugby, you know, putting the hard tackles in, getting in the ruck, doing the work, your teammates will always respect that. And it's no different at the army, you know, you just need to roll your sleeves up sometimes and, and show that you're prepared to do the hard work. Were there any mistakes that you made on that tour that you then learned from going forgoing forwards? Probably loads, yeah. <laughs> you know, we're all human, right? And 
mistakes will happen. I think we just try and minimize that through professional competence as much as possible. But, uh, you know, there was, you know, one, one example I could probably think of where, you know, I, because we used to move around the AO so much with the role we were doing, you know, keeping your map up to date is just a basic skill of an officer and, and any leader who's responsible for taking a patrol out. And I, I didn't have an ops box marked on my, my map. Um, it was on the same day, actually, that we were, that we've just referred to with me, me jumping down because that, that place where I was conducting Obama was actually inside an ops box for another operation, which uh, was in a pretty tasty part of, of the AO. And thankfully, we got through it. But, you know, that was by probably luck, not my judgment. So the symbols of marking your map up, the basic stuff you taught is, can be really important. So you were moving through an area that had been designated for the operation of another unit, but you were not aware that that area had been designated. And by passing through it, you could have ended up being accidentally targeted, a fratricide incident. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the possibilities there were endless. You know, it could have either completely derailed the, the other operation going on, or yeah, could have stumbled into the, the enemy's killing area, or indeed be targeted by either friendly or, or, or enemy forces. So uh, thankfully, that didn't happen. But the simple uh, skill of keeping your map up to date, you know, would have prevented any of that anyway. So, And, and what did you think or feel when you recognised what had happened? Well, I was relieved, obviously, to get back that evening. Uh, like I say, it had been a long day. But um, it also just reminds you of the responsibility you have for other people. And, you know, so my my carelessness at that point might have been really, really costly. And I probably wouldn't have forgiven myself should anything have happened. So, yeah, uh, yeah you know, that hit home pretty pretty immediately. But part of learning. When you went back into battalion, when you next had a command role in the regiment, it was as the... OC, the officer commanding of the mortar platoon, which is a platoon that's usually made up of soldiers who've been there for quite a long time. It's developed quite a strong culture and they're subject matter experts who've been in that same location for a long time. What was it like going in and what were the particular challenges you faced going there? Yeah, good good question. I mean, it was, um, it was an absolute privilege to be selected as, as the OC uh, of the mortar platoon. But also actually pre- presented one of um, one of my largest leadership challenges in that whilst I knew I was going to become the platoon commander for that platoon, my 2IC was quite well renowned for making officers' lives difficult, uh, is a probably a polite way to put it. So he would have um, been a warrant officer? Yes, he was, yeah. Um, and also actually he and I personally had had a, a misunderstanding in battalion beforehand where it had come to heads. So whilst really privileged to be selected for that position. I was also filled with a bit of dread of, oh God, I've got to, you know, manage this relationship now and it's going to be pretty uncomfortable for the next two years. And I then made that worse through some poor communication on my part where after leave, coming back, so it's basically my first day with, with the new platoon, I'd agreed with the, with the OC that I'd be coming in a day later um, because of a, a, a function that I had to attend. But I hadn't actually told that to my 2IC or indeed the platoon. So when the Battalion was reforming after leave. Um, OC Mortars Muggins here was uh, was not on parade, so I got a pretty uh, pretty tasty voicemail from my new two IC, uh, which just added to that complexity of relationship management. But my approach then after that was right. I'm, I need to just be the best officer I can be now, be super professional, and you know let let that shine through as something that you know we don't have to like each other for for two years, but we do need to respect each other. And so I you know. I set out to be really professional from that, that moment onwards to make sure that I wasn't letting anyone in that platoon down. 
And was there a conversation that you had with your TYC that sort of set the conditions of what would be happening going forward? Was there a way that you, after the pad start, tried to reset it? Yeah, I mean, I, I addressed the elephant in the room, you know, and we just had a good frank conversation and went for a, a cup of tea and, you know, talked about what, what had gone on and, you know, how we were going to tackle it. And his deep care and passion for the platoon and the capability was a strength of his that I sort of capitalised on. And so our sense of identity as a platoon was really important to us. And then through my approach of just trying to be the most professional officer I could be for them, we actually started to complement each other really well where, you know, he was sort of, a, you know, the, the firm hand and the, the father of the platoon, if you like. And, you know, I was sort of more of the calming, doctrine-minded, policy-compliance officer where, you know, just keeping us on the right track, which is not as easy as it sounds when you come on in the mortar platoon, usually full of some of the older and bolder in the, in the battalion who like to perhaps deviate from the, the path of righteousness more often than others. So you'd had this experience of over-familiarity in the rifle platoon. How did that compare with your daily engagement with them? I mean, you've referenced a focus on policy and doctrine. What kind of character were you in that platoon and how did that, did it contrast a lot with the character of Lieutenant Charlie Lee in the rifle platoon? Yeah, I think, you know, fortunately I was able to sort of reflect on my experience as a rifle platoon commander and, and apply some changes to, to the mortar platoon or my approach to the mortar platoon, I should say. And so by setting out to be, you know, this sort of stalwart of the values and standards to understand, know, understand and implement policy, doctrine and guidance, I wasn't actually that worried or focused about, you know, whether the platoon liked me or not. I was there to serve them, so servant leadership in doing everything right and by the book. And in doing so, sort of got the nickname of Captain Rigid, which uh, the soldiers liked to call me because they thought they were taking the mick out of me. But actually, it was a compliment to me because it was reassuring that I was getting that approach right and giving them that, that handrail to operate on. You know, and that was really rewarding. One of the things we hear about is toxic leadership, but there's also a challenge of toxic followership, which it sounds like you could have had when you took over that platoon. But you found a way to manage that and have a more trusting relationship, even if it wasn't a familiar or well-liked relationship. And was that largely because they just knew what they were getting for you they had consistency yeah I'd, I'd say that's probably probably about right you know consistency is really important i think as as a as an officer and a, as a leader and fairness with that as well so yeah I, I suspect there was probably an element of that but also i think i was just more confident in that what i was doing was right because it was guided by policy doctrine and guidance you know so you can you can have a, a better discussion with your to IC when you're consulting over decisions, you know, you've got a more assured footing to do that on, which then through consultation, both with the two IC, the senior NCOs, the junior NCOs at different levels for different decisions, they're bought in as well. And so that fosters that followership better. And it's something that I, I do now as routine when, when you get the opportunity to consult on a decision or an outcome with those around you, with their expertise and their perspective, but do so knowing that there's not always the time and space to consult. You know, sometimes you need to make a decision quickly and in isolation and do so based on as much knowledge and experience as you have. But when you can, bring the team in, get that buy-in and that followership, you know, will, will grow and grow and you'll get better outcomes for it. And so that must have then helped when you went on to subunit command where you've developed followership so that you can get the information you need for decisions. How do you make sure you get that balance right between having information coming towards you 
and at times an appropriate challenge culture without it undermining the integrity of command. So creating a good psychological space where people feel that they can come forward, but making sure they're doing it respectfully, responsibly and constructively. Yeah, I mean, it's a really good point. Um, you know, you've got to set a culture where people feel they're able to do that. You know, there's physically knowing how to make a complaint or make a challenge. And then there's conceptual understanding of how to make that challenge itself. And so, you know, I was quite keen on making sure that the, all the ranks in, in my company had, had a voice. And so there was two strands, really. One was the formal forums I would have with them at different levels of rank, um, just to give them a voice to, you know, talk about what was on their mind or what was on their chest at any at a given points and just making time to do that. But then also just, you know, knowing your people really and taking the opportunities to, you know, talk to people on the back of a range, talk to people at a naffy break and get around the get around the company, be seen, see and be seen, you know, see what's going on. And by breaking down that barrier of people knowing you better, you know, they're more able to to give you that information. And then the how they do it is really just some education on, you know, what is constructive and what is not. And you know, the MOD actually produced a great guide on that after the Chilcot inquiry, which just gives both the chain of command, but also the people wishing to make challenge some really simple guidance on, on how to do that, which is quite helpful. I think you've said actually that the army makes it quite easy to lead and do your job well if you follow what the army has laid down and given you, but you then have to amend your leadership style to it. Yeah, I mean, you know, risk of sounding like, a, you know, an advertiser for army doctrine. It, it is, you know, and I realised this far too late in my career probably, actually would have loved to have given myself some advice uh, earlier to, to read more doctrine because, you know, the army leadership doctrine I've, I've spoken about, you know, it is it's a fantastic publication for leaders at any level. And the army really does make it easy for you to be professional because pretty much everything we need to do is written out there somewhere in policy, doctrine and guidance. It's just knowing understanding and implementing that. And it's actually quite liberating when you do access doctrine because you realise you don't have to think about everything all the time. A lot of people have thought about it for you and put it down in, in a book, which is, for me, very reassuring. Sometimes it's difficult, though, to fully put it into practice. And whilst you're a subunit commander, you're leading your subunit, but at times you're also a follower because you're following the experience and advice of your senior NCOs and warrant officers when it comes to giving you the information you need to make decisions, but you're also following up the chain of command. I mean, have there been any experiences that you found where it's been difficult to sell something down? And how do you cope with that? Yeah, I think a lot of people in the army would have come across that experience where, you know, you're, you're being asked to do something you don't necessarily want to do yourself, or you know that your subordinates won't want to do when you ask them. There's that natural confliction, isn't there, between loyalty and, and integrity, doing the right thing, uh, but also being loyal up and down the chain of command. You know, an experience I would relate to there in subunit command again was when some of my people were coming forward with, with good ideas for adventure training, but was actually perhaps uh, at odds with the, the commanding officer's view of, you know, whether we should be doing adventure training. You know, I had to convince, to influence those people under my command of not doing it in a way where I wasn't saying, Oh, the CEO said no. I was doing it to offer, you know, why it might be best for the battalion or the company that we didn't do that right now and try and see the why behind the, the decision where it'd be quite easy to turn around and blame your chain of command and go, oh, well, the, the CEO said, said no, it's not my fault. I haven't said no. The CEO said no. That's, that's probably the, the easy option. The, the difficult 
And better option is to convince those people of, of what, what the outcome is through your own explanation and owning that, that order yourself. So it's taking orders. And if you're passing that down, then it does become your order. So it's not only putting your own stamp on it, but also ensuring it gets followed. And have you had to do that back up the other way? Have there been things where you've had to take responsibility for something, even though it could be easy to say it's not your fault and you could sort of blame somebody further down? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Look, we, you know, like I said, we're all human, um, you know, and I've certainly had my fair share of, of mistakes, which is great for learning. But no, I do recall, you know, a particular time in Soviet Command where we hadn't quite got the fourth generation of some of our people right and had missed a, a, a jab, a vaccine, which almost impacted the ability to force generate people for operation. But to, to cut a long story short, where I could probably identify whose failing it was within the company, actually, my approach was that it's my company and I'm responsible for everything within it and that goes on. So, you know, I took that to the to the CEO. I, I took it as my failing because not only does that explain really quickly up the chain of command what's gone wrong and possibly what you can do about it, but it also gives them the trust in you that you're being honest with them, you know, and that's, that's really important. Whilst at the same time, buying the trust of your subordinates who know that you're willing to take responsibility for you know, what goes on in that company. So it's a, it's, a, it's a double win. You know, the chain of command respects your decision to do that and they know what's going on, um, even if it is something that they ne- now need to help clear up. <laughs> but your subordinates also, you know, go, okay, well, we, you know, that guy's prepared to put himself on the line for us. So we're going to work hard for him. So it's a virtuous circle. And did that make it then easier to try and fix that problem? Yeah, definitely. Look, everyone was hands to pump at that point, trying to trying to recover that. And, you know, that in itself generates good bonds between people and makes the outcome more satisfying when you get there, when it's, you know, the greater challenge, the greater reward, right? So, uh, yeah, it was an experience, you know, none of us would have chosen to go through at that time, high pressure, possible poor outcomes. But in doing so, it was a good bonding experience for me and my team, but also a good learning one too. Charlie, when I look back over your time as a leader, there's a couple of things that really stand out. One is how you developed an awareness of how familiarity and being liked is not necessarily the best way to lead a team. Being liked can come if you're respected. And you realize that actually just turning to the value standards and behaviors and doctrine and policy was the easiest or clearest way to do that. But second to that, it's that if you have consistency and people know what to expect from you, then it becomes easier to generate trust. So you end up with more effective followership from your subordinates to you, but from you to your commanders as well. Would you say that that's a a fair summary? Yeah, I think so. I think I'd probably want to be clear, though, that I'm not advocating being disliked. I think we're in an army now where, you know, you can be personable, definitely, and you should be as a leader. But, you know, where I say there was over-familiarity and I was seeking acceptance by being liked as a junior officer... That was one of the things I was focusing on, whereas actually what you know, your subordinates will like about you is the fact that you are a very good person at implementing policy, doctrine, guidance, values and standards. They'll like the consistency of that. We don't have to like one another in terms of wanting to spend a Friday evening in the pub together, but they will like that you can do your professional role to a good standard, which allows them to do their roles and is fair and consistent. But yeah, I just want to, <laughs> I'm not advocating, you know, we should do that and be disliked and be a bad person for it. Not at all. Don't um, need to be obnoxious to, no, exactly, yeah. to follow the rules. And if that's kind of your summary of leadership, is that what you say to officer cadets now in your role as a chief instructor at Sandhurst? How do you pass that on to the next generation of people who are about to 
go into roles of leadership. Yeah, and it's you know it's forever uh, a challenge probably. But I do I do absolutely advocate you know the use of doctrine. If if I could have known and used doctrine more when I was both an officer cadet and a junior officer, I would have developed better and quicker as an officer. As it as it is, I think my development journey has been slower than it needed to be because it took me three roles really to to understand that that approach is really effective and the army makes the professional approach really easy for you but we just need to access that earlier by reading the doctrine that it gives us i'd love to dig into more of those bits and some of the other things you learn particularly as a mortising commander which is certainly an interesting place but we always like to finish with three questions so first of all how do you like to spend your perfect sunday Perfect Sunday, I think, would be at home with the family and friends, probably watching some sort of sport, rugby, cricket, or some Formula One with a barbecue in the background and spending some time with the family and friends. Are there any examples of books, movies, or podcasts that you found really good about leadership that you like to recommend to other people? Certainly. I mean, you know, there's loads out there, isn't there? Um, I think early on in my career, Dusty Warriors by Richard Holmes as an aspiring Tigers officer was, was a really important read to me, but really accessible to, to everyone as well. You don't have to be a Tiger to enjoy that. Uh, but also then Leading from the Front by Richard Dannett, who, again, just highlights some of the basic leadership lessons in his career. Um, and it's quite accessible to, to us as leaders. What would you say to Officer Cadet Charlie Lee, based on what you know now? Pull your socks up, apply yourself, use the resources that are at your disposal from as early a point as you possibly can. So... Get your head in the books, read the doctrine and, and apply it. Major Charlie Lee, thanks very much. Ash, thank you. It was great speaking to Charlie. He is the chief instructor of the senior term here at Sandhurst. And you can really see how his own experience of how he developed as an officer, the mistakes that he made and what he learned from them has shaped the way he thinks about officership and leadership now today. In particular, understanding that just doing your job well and being a professional is the critical thing you need to do. The doctrine and the policy and the values and standards are out there. And if you apply that, that will mean that you're doing a good job, not just for you, but for your platoon, your company, your squadron, your troop, serving to lead, doing the job to make it easier for them. That doesn't mean that you have to be unlikable. You can be personable, but you're there to do it in a professional context. The other aspect is owning your decisions and owning your orders because that develops trust. It develops trust up the chain to your commanders and it develops trust down the chain to your subordinates. If you're in command, you're responsible for what happens in your organization. And if your team see that you take that ownership and that responsibility seriously, they will trust you more. And then that makes it easier to develop followership and strong teams. This is The Human Advantage, presented and produced by me, Ash Bardwaj of Digital Dandy, and co-produced by Lucy Ditchment of Feast Collective, on behalf of the Centre for Army Leadership. What you hear on each episode are the views of the participants and do not represent the position of the Centre for Army Leadership, the British Army, or the United Kingdom Government. Please rate and subscribe to The Human Advantage on your podcast app, where you can find more episodes. If you enjoyed the episode, do send it to any friends and colleagues that you think might appreciate it, and maybe even share it on social media. For more information about developing leadership, just search online for the Centre for Army Leadership. Thanks for listening.